Welcome to the Church Basement Podcast. Today's topic is Doubting Thomas. Grab a cup of coffee or tea, strap on your running shoes, or pick up your knitting needles or crochet hook and join us. Let us introduce ourselves. I am Pastor Amanda Zenzelo, and I serve as the pastor at Central Lutheran Church in Northeast Portland, Oregon. And I'm Don Miller, a member here at Central and the producer of the podcast. Okay, so we were pleasantly surprised that we have not yet covered Doubting Thomas, at least as his own special, specific podcast. I believe he is a favorite of both of ours. Am I correct? I think so. Yeah. Okay. So for me, it's as much about the fact that he's one of the few characters in the Bible where I really relate very much to. (laughs) We'll find out why you like him so much. But first, let's start with the backstory. Who is Thomas? Thomas is one of the 12 disciples that spend time with Jesus. He's there at the Last Supper. He's there through the garden conversations. Thomas is one of the disciples that journey along with him from his teaching around Galilee all the way through to the end. And the particular section that we're going to be discussing that gives him the nickname Doubting Thomas Mm -hmm. comes from the Gospel of John and is after the crucifixion. Okay. So does he show up in all of the Gospels or just in John? This particular story only shows up in John. Okay. So what is this particular story? This story happens after the resurrection scene to Mary in the garden. And after Peter has come and run and looked into the tomb to find out whether or not Jesus has been resurrected, like looking for the body. Mm -hmm. And the disciples have gathered in a room in Jerusalem and they've locked the door because they're afraid. Their leader has just been crucified and killed. They don't know where the body is. They don't exactly know what's happened. Their women are telling odd stories about seeing Jesus alive again. It's super weird, super sketchy. They're freaked out. Sure. So the disciples are in a room. The door is locked. And Jesus shows up in the room and says, peace be with you. That would totally freak me out. Right? Of course, he has to say, do not be afraid. Sure. (laughs) Because everyone's afraid. Jesus is there and says, see my hands, see my side. And then he breathes on them and gives them the Holy Spirit and then goes away. But on that night, Thomas, also called the twin, was not with them in the locked room. And so all the disciples go and they tell Thomas, we've seen the Lord. This has happened. Jesus is alive. And Thomas says, unless I see the wound in his side and the wound in his hands, I will not believe. So a week later, everyone is gathered in the locked room again. And this time Thomas is with them. Mm -hmm. And into their midst, Jesus arrives once again and says, peace be with you. And then he goes to Thomas and says, here, put your hand in my side, place your finger into my wounds Do not doubt, but believe. And Thomas replies with, my Lord and my God. And Jesus says, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. So this is the story. This is the pericope, the section of the scripture where Thomas gets his nickname for doubting. Mm -hmm. But he could also as easily be called confessing Thomas. Because he's the first one to confess Jesus as Lord and God. Okay. 
but we get hung up on the doubting. So we call him Doubting Thomas. <laughs> Absolutely. I get hung up on the doubting myself because I feel very much like Thomas, that there are times I would like to see actual evidence of what I'm supposed to be believing in. Yes. Which makes me feel more terrible about the whole thing. Except that I think it's so normal to doubt. It is so normal to question. And some of the things I've spent my entire Christian life with this story, basically, because this is the story that the preacher that I heard for the first time in my heart, this was the scripture he was preaching on. Okay. And it was after hearing this scripture preached on that I was ready to be baptized. And it was because even in this scripture, we can see that questioning and doubting and wondering about this faith is completely normalized. Even someone who spent their entire time with Jesus living and walking on the earth doubted that this could be true. And throughout the years since then, spending more and more time with this specific text, this particular text is like a heartbeat text for me. And to take this text and to say, the very first time Jesus showed up, the other disciples saw the wounds. Why would we be angry at Thomas for wanting that same proof that his friends had had? Sure. Why would we judge him for that? There's nothing inherently wrong or lacking in faith or evil about questioning or doubting our faith or doubting our God. It's the decisions that we make. It's like any emotion you have is perfectly valid. There's nothing good or bad about an emotion. They're simply emotions. Okay. What we can look at and say whether things are wise or unwise or helpful or unhelpful are the choices we make based on our emotions. Okay. Right? Like if I'm feeling sad, I get to feel sad. If I'm feeling sad and I start harming other people because I feel sad, it's my decision to harm other people that is unhelpful, not my sadness. The same thing with anger. I get to feel as much anger as I want to feel. How I choose to use that anger in the world is whether it becomes a helpful or unhelpful, destructive or constructive use of emotion. Thomas's doubting is not bad in and of itself. It is simply his reaction to the fact that his community saw Jesus before him. And so how he chooses to react when he then is placed in that same position as everyone else is he chooses to see God and respond to God by saying, you are God. He's the first to recognize that Jesus and God are one. Even though Jesus has been saying it in the Gospel of John for like ever. Sure. <laughs> the entire priestly prayer is this messy pronoun soup of you and I are one and we are they and they are we and blah, 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 blah. And we finally have someone in this gospel who's like, oh, yeah, you really are God and God really is you. And that's on Thomas. And there's more. There's so much more about this text that is beautiful and awesome and amazing. Well, it's funny to me that that is always overlooked to the point of even now my brain is spinning on the possibilities of what that means in terms of this particular character. And also your wonderful discussion of emotions makes me want to go back and watch the Pixar <laughs> movie again. Yes. <laughs> that is a great movie. Yeah, Inside Out. That movie especially is an interesting breakdown of emotions 
And your discussion of the emotion itself not being good or bad is a helpful way to look at so many other stories that show up in the Bible, but that's not how we typically think of these things. Totally not. We like to put judgment words on emotions. Oh, yes, we do. And we put judgment words then on people who are experiencing emotions. When judgment words, again, can be about our actions, about our choices, about our decisions, I tend to try to not use good or bad to judge actions, but helpful, unhelpful, Mm -hmm. constructive, deconstructive, whatever kinds of words that maybe help in that way. Thomas in this story, I get caught on lots of things. I get caught on the permission to doubt because I think that matters so much. Yeah, it does. And it mattered hugely to me at 19 to hear that it was okay to doubt and to wonder and to question and just to be given that permission at 19. That's fascinating to me because I never at that age felt that the Doubting Thomas story meant that you were okay to doubt. It was more of a, see, here's your proof. Now sit down and shut up. Yeah. And that is purely because of how it was preached. Sure. Purely because of how Chaplain Radeke preached it in 1997, the Sunday after Easter at Susquehanna University in Pennsylvania. (laughs) In chapel with one girl who was required to be there because I was in the, not the touring choir, but in the lower level choir. Mm -hmm. And we had to sing at chapel. And so for a grade, I attended chapel. (laughs) That's fascinating. His first sermon that he preached as the newly called chaplain at the university was this one. And he talked about it being okay to doubt and okay to wonder. That is fabulous. Yeah, I did not get that at 19. (laughs) It would have been helpful, that's for sure. Okay, so how much of a time lapse are we actually talking here between the resurrection and Jesus showing up and the whole Thomas thing? That's a really great question. I believe that the first appearance comes like, so on the day three is the resurrection day, right? On the third day, Mary's went to the garden and found that the tomb was empty. So it was the next Sabbath day. So it was like that Friday night when this happened, when he showed up in the room to the disciples the first time. And then a week later, he showed up again, and that's when Thomas was there. So in the years that I've been dwelling in this story, it really comes to matter to me because I just started pondering what would it be like to have been Thomas and thinking about who he might have been, like why wasn't he there the first week? Was he just late? And so they locked the door and he couldn't get in? Yeah. Did he get locked out? Was he too depressed? Oh, sure. Was he sleeping and too depressed and too sad? that he had left? Was he too confused? Was he running errands and lost track of time? Right. Did he go somewhere else? Did he journey to Mary and Martha and Lazarus outside of the city? And was he with them in Bethany, the close friends of Jesus? Why was it that Thomas wasn't there? And we, we don't know. There's no clue in the scripture as to why, but as someone who kind of sits with characters and character motivation as kind of an exercise in exploring scripture, I've wondered about that for a long time. Why wasn't he there that first week? What was it that kept him away? And when the other disciples come and say, we've seen the Lord, 
And he responds with, I'm not going to believe it until I see it. It echoes so much for me in those times in which I have battled with depression and grieving and loss Mm -hmm. of, okay, fine. So you're feeling better. Good for you. Right? Like that defensive, angry, that I'm still grieving. Give me permission to grieve. Mm -hmm. Lots of different things, right? Like it's just an interesting dynamic. But the beautiful thing is, is that for that entire week, the disciples had already seen Jesus and Thomas was still outside the group now and locked out of this hope that they had back in their spirits. They literally had the gift of the Holy Spirit and he did not. And yet he was still a part of the community because when the whole week had passed, they had done what they needed to do to make sure that Thomas was in the room with them this time. Mm -hmm. They didn't lock him out. They didn't tell him he was stupid for not believing them. They didn't ostracize him. They didn't punish him. They made sure that he remained in community and was present when Jesus came back the second time. So then what's the lesson for us about being community together? Oh, sure. And loving one another, even when we're at different places of mourning and different places on our journeys of grief and different places of journey of our faith different places on how much we do or don't believe in Jesus and this bodily resurrection thing. Like there's a whole lesson just in that week. Oh yeah. Super relevant today. Oddly so. Right. And wondering what it was, again, if we think about being in a pandemic, his leader, his, the person he thought was the Messiah had just been killed, crucified, horrible death. I don't know that I would have had the energy four days later to leave my house, dare the streets, go out into the world and gather again with a bunch of people who were marked as followers of this person who had just been killed. That's terrifying. Yeah, there's real danger in that. And if we've experienced any kind of anxiety about going outside during the pandemic and feeling afraid very literal mortal fear of going outside and having something happen to us that we're unanticipating or that we're afraid of, but we know is very possible if we walk out our door to go grocery shopping or to go visit a friend. We know from this last year of pandemic living what it feels like to be afraid, what it feels like for it to feel life and death together with our beloved ones. And Thomas was feeling what it was like to have it be life or death together with beloved ones. And he didn't have the strength to show up the first week. Frankly, I don't know that I'll have the strength to show up the first time I'm invited. Sure. (laughs) Right? So there's just so much to enter into just in hearing this story, just in letting the time lapse kind of unravel, giving it that space to breathe. It may be one sentence in the scripture, but it's an entire week, seven days of meals, Seven days of finding ways to do things together. Seven days of living in a city that might want you dead. There's a whole story there that we don't get. Mm-hmm. And that's not the part of the story we usually talk about either. Mm-mm. Fascinating. So does this come every year, the week after Easter? Is this the story that you hear? Or because of the lectionary cycle, you only get it every three years? This is the one story The one pericope reading we get every single year. Really? Mm -hmm. So even our gospels change, 
right? And we'll hear the Gospel of John resurrection story every year, either during the Triduum, during Thursday, Friday, Saturday, or on the Sundays of Palm Sunday and Easter. You can hear the Gospel of John every year for the resurrection, but oftentimes we change it up and we get the readings from Matthew, Mark, or Luke. Mm -hmm. But the Sunday after Easter every single year is the Doubting Thomas reading from the Gospel of John. That is fascinating to me. I mean, I sort of could have guessed that just because it's such a known story. Yeah. And yet I never would have put two and two together. It makes sense, though, especially from the standpoint of doubt and belief and needing proof. It makes perfect sense that it's there every year. So another piece of this story that I think we get caught talking about Thomas And there's so many more levels to this particular pericope. There's the gifting of the keys, whatever things you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed on heaven, right? There's this gifting that Jesus does the first time that he shows up in the room. But one of the things that is fascinating to ponder that isn't actually about Thomas, but is in this section is that the crucified and risen Jesus comes back wounded. Mm -hmm. We take that for granted But Jesus didn't have to return with wounds. No, except it certainly cements that whole human part of it, right? And it shows that God didn't just ignore the pain that God experienced as Jesus. And in the Gospel of John, there is a little bit of a way in which the crucifixion scene can feel like Jesus is kind of standing to the side and like marking off checkboxes, like, in order that the scripture might be fulfilled, he asked for water, you know, and they gave him some vinegar to drink, right? Like Mm -hmm. each little thing you could check off. But here in this resurrection scene from John is this extremely human reality that Jesus doesn't come back with a pure and pristine body. Jesus returns as the wounded Lord. And those wounds matter. They're not scars, This is the part I don't like to dwell on very much. I know, I know. And partially probably because of your Catholic background, (laughs) right? It's very much so. It's pretty visceral. But if we ponder what that means, that Jesus doesn't erase the pain, Jesus doesn't deny the pain. In the resurrection, Jesus doesn't make it go away. And we're promised that all the parts of us that are broken will go away in the resurrection, right? That is part of the promise. But for Jesus to remain wounded and to be a wounded risen Lord means that these things, Jesus will carry this, not in a way of continued pain or torture, but in the way of these things have happened. This is a part of the story. And your wounds are a part of your story. And I see them and they matter. And it's okay. Instead of just glossing over the whole thing. Instead of glossing it over and making it go away and ignoring it. There's an entire book. It was actually the final book that Dr. Robert Smith was working on while I was in seminary before he died from cancer. And he was the professor that opened the Gospels for me. And in my first year of seminary, while I was deciding whether or not to go on the track to ordination... Again, Mm -hmm. I've said this story is just woven into my story so much. So it brought me to the baptismal font. And in seminary, I started attending seminary not to become a pastor, but to get a different theological degree. But while I was deciding whether or not 
to enter in as a Master's of Divinity candidate, I started taking the Gospels class, and Dr. Smith was the professor. He was working on his final book, and he asked me, because of my theater background, if I would memorize this passage to show the impact that it can have for a pastor to share a gospel memorized Mm -hmm. and just tell the story. And he finished his book, his actually his wife finished his book and it was published posthumously after his death from cancer. He died, I think the year after maybe in my first or second year of first call. Okay. And it's called the wounded, the wounded Lord. And it's all about this. It's all about this passage. The entire book. The entire book. And the implications that Jesus returns to us as a wounded Lord and not as just a scarred one and not just as someone whose pain has been erased and taken away. And what are the theological implications of that? Dr. Smith was an incredible theologian around justice and equity and all kinds of powerful, powerful witness. And this text was the one that he was really kind of dwelling in, in those years. So for me, this text, it just is a heartbeat. It's a faith heartbeat. It's amazing to me how little I have thought about a text that I've probably heard 48 times, 47 (laughs) at least. (laughs) And the impact that it could have. It's pretty amazing. And there's also the joke that the Sunday after Easter is like low attendance Sunday. (laughs) The least attended service in the year. Right? Sure. And so some people do holy humor Sunday where they do all kinds of like jokes and things like that on this Sunday as like a lighthearted whatever. I've just never been, I mean, even when I was an actor, I wasn't a comedic actor. Uh So I don't have those skills. So I'm like, no, let's look at Thomas and the wounds (laughs) of Christ. That's fabulous. (laughs) That is going to lead me to my last question, because I now realize it shows up every year. Do you like to preach on it in terms of, is it hard to come up with new stuff? Or do you like to sort of pinpoint the same thing every year? I have enjoyed preaching on it. And I have done so many, many, many times, especially in team ministry, because I've been like, the senior pastor is exhausted from Easter. So the associate pastor, <laughs> sure, tag, <laughs> tag, you're it. And as a solo pastor, I preach it. I often for, not forget, but I don't take this whole week off the mm-hmm. week after Easter often. And I don't know. I often feel like I just want to say the same things to everybody, but in like a not very sermonic way. Like I just want to be like, look, everybody, this passage is so super cool here. Let me show you this and this and this kind of like I've done here on the podcast. Sure. That is not a good sermon structure, so to speak. So I feel like I end up saying the same thing in a not great way. And like one of the things that is really, really obvious when you're a new preacher is when you have a text that you dearly love and you preach like five sermons the first time. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. You cover the timing concept and you cover Thomas and doubting and confessing and you cover wounded and you just add everything in all at the same time. So no one hears anything because you've said too much and nothing at all. Sure. And, And so I always fear that on this Sunday, that's what I end up doing is that I end up preaching too much and nothing at all. And 
it's never quite as obvious how much this matters, or I've ended up just saying the exact same thing every single year and it doesn't feel creative and people are so bored. And (laughs) I don't know, because I love the passage so much and because it's so important to me. Sure. I think I probably do my worst preaching on this Sunday. Oh, that's fascinating. (laughs) I would disagree, but I'm very much looking forward to what you come up with on Sunday. Oh, so am I. I'll be very interested to see what the Spirit says. (laughs) Excellent. Well, thank you, Pastor Amanda, for taking the time to help us learn a little more about Doubting Thomas. I look forward to sitting down with you another week on another topic. As do I. And thank you all for joining us this week. A happy Easter season to all of you. And until we are back in your ears again, remember, God loves you no matter what.